Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part three in our series on Future Shock, the title and the subject of a best-selling futurology book from more than 50 years ago. Uh, If you haven't heard parts one and two yet, you should probably go back and listen to those first. That'll help you understand what we're talking about today. But I thought we could start with a recap here at the top. So Future Shock is the name of a very influential book published in 1970 by an author named Alvin Toffler, who was known to be a close collaborator with his wife, Heidi Toffler. So uh, in this series, we've sometimes been speaking of the ideas of the Tofflers rather than just Alvin, though uh, originally he was credited as the sole author of the book. And I would describe the main idea of the book Future Shock as follows. So Of course, the human technological tool set is always changing to some degree, but the age beginning in like the second half of the 20th century is truly a special time in history. It's a time when technology is developing much, much faster than ever before. I think there are a lot of data points you could use to show that it's not just that it feels this way, but this is objectively true, uh, like you could measure the, uh, the rate of acceleration of energy consumed around the world, the accelerating number of patents issued, the productivity in various industries per worker, uh, the acceleration of uh, time spent on technologically mediated activities, and so forth. And the authors of this book argue 
that these changes are so drastic, we should think of the time beginning in the mid-20th century as a totally new technology regime. Maybe the previous regimes began with the transition from hunter-gatherer lifestyle to agriculture, and then after that, the transition uh, to the industrial age through inventions like the steam engine, and then this would be the third one. And this new age that we exist in, they call the super-industrial age. And the acceleration in technological change that uh, characterizes this age may, of course, come with lots of benefits for human life. You can easily point to medical advances that uh, that make life, you know, human life longer and and help people live with less illness and all you know all kinds of things that are are pretty unambiguous positive impacts on human life. But the Tofflers argue that these changes also come with a profound cost that we have to understand and prepare for. And the cost that they focus on in the book is a mass psychological condition that they call future shock. And they compare future shock to the pre-existing idea of culture shock, which is the state of anxiety and psychic distress brought on when somebody is plunged into an unfamiliar culture where they don't speak the language, they don't understand the laws or customs, they don't know how to, how to interact with anything. They say future shock is like that, but for one's own culture, as it changes rapidly around us due to the effects of the new science and the new machines. And they say this new environment will be characterized primarily by transience, novelty, and diversity. So transience, things, uh, situations coming into and out of uh, being faster and faster, uh, arrangements lasting for shorter periods of time. Uh, Of course, novelty meaning new things you've never had to deal with before, and diversity meaning just a lot of different things to understand and decide between and choose from. And so the Tofflers write that these changes in technology have profound effects, uh, not just on the gadgets we deal with, but the, you know they've got these secondary effects that uh, revolutionize our work lives, our family lives, our minds, and our culture, and that the accelerating rate of change uh, alters our culture faster than most people are able to adapt. So we can never get used to it. We can never grow accustomed to the new normal as people can when overcoming culture shock, because with culture shock, you can eventually maybe learn the language and learn the, the local norms and adapt, or you uh, conversely, you can just go home. With future shock, you can't ever really do that because you can't go back to the past. And by the time you get used to it, you learn the new language and the new customs, it has changed again. And technology will just keep changing the world faster and faster so we can never keep up. And they say this leads to a widespread sense of unease, anxiety, frustration, and confusion, the future shock that defines our age. You know, I have to throw in here that in the first episode, I mentioned that uh, when I explained the the concept again to my wife, she was like, oh, that's not real. I don't really believe that's the thing. But, uh, But then a listener wrote in and encouraged everyone to watch a particular episode of SpongeBob SquarePants an episode or part of an episode titled SB-129, in which Squidward travels into the future and is overcome by all of the chrome technological advancements around him, including multiple SpongeBob clones, curls up in a ball on the floor and begins to go future, future, over and over again. Uh, My family watched this episode over the weekend, and my wife tells me that now she understands future shock. Oh, okay. Wait, she understands it, but still thinks that it does not describe the reality we live in, or she does think it describes the reality we live in? I would say that she uh, 
she understands the concept and sees how you could apply that concept to some of our interactions with technology today. Okay, so she's part partially converted, thinks it is partially descriptive of reality. Yeah, you can't argue with Squidward on this one. <laughs> I'd say that's where I am. I think it is partially correct, partially descriptive of our reality. Yeah. Well, anyway, in this series, we've been taking a look at this uh, 53-year-old book, Futurology, uh, to see what what we think about it, what we think the Tofflers were right about, what we think they were wrong about, uh, if there's any empirical evidence that can be brought in to assess the accuracy of their predictions, and so forth. And so we've, we've already talked about a number of their specific predictions about the future, though to be fair, uh, I, I do recall there's a part in the book where Toffler says, these are not, quote, predictions, uh, you know, so when I say, like, in the future, we're going to be living a lot more underneath the ocean and having to learn to navigate submarine environments and stuff. Uh, for some reason, he says they're not predictions. They're more just sort of like imaginings. And we, we shouldn't be overly concerned with whether these specifics are right, but instead should think about the general trend. Um, OK, fair enough, Alvin. Uh, but in, in fact, the way we use the word prediction, I do think these are predictions. So I think it's fair to describe them that way, even though he didn't like using that word. Yeah, I kind of see where he's coming from. Like he he's not saying we will definitely put embryos on spaceships and send them to other planets. Right. Um, <laughs> right. But he points to that as sort of like in the tree of conceivable possibilities based on like unchecked scientific advancement. That's somewhere we might get to. And if we do get there, are we really ready to deal with that? Uh, and yeah. I, I'd say for yeah. the most part, he tends to lay out those ideas in a very sort of neutral fashion, uh, though, again, it is a book written uh, in the late 60s, published in 1970. And, you know, some of that cultural texture is there, as we've discussed. Agreed. But anyway, in the, in the previous episodes, we've talked about uh, of these things, which I do think are fair to call predictions. But you're right. He, he couches them in a uh, in a more uh, nuanced way. Uh, but they range from quite thoughtful and accurately predictive to totally wrong and extremely funny ways. Uh, in the former column, one thing that stands out to me, I mean, it's often been pointed out that, wow, he, you know, he really sort of got a lot right about things like personal computers and the internet and how media would change over time, like the, the rising importance of electronic media more and more in human life. Uh, I think he was on track about a lot of that. One that really stood out to me in the book is essentially the prediction of personally curated news feeds as opposed to having to read the same newspaper or watch the same news uh, evening news as everybody else, which I think that's a that's a profoundly meaningful development that uh, I'm not so sure would have been easy to predict in 1970. But as an example of the things uh, that they got wrong, you know, there is, uh, again, like leaning heavily on the idea that way more of human life would shift to take place in the ocean or in space. That hasn't really panned out yet, and I'm kind of doubtful whether it will. And there's a bunch of stuff about the changing biomedical environment. Like, they they, they say a lot about cloning, which in some ways I think is... Uh, pretty accurate about like where the technological capability could be going, but wrong about the way that it would impact culture and the possibilities it would provide to the average person. Yeah, yeah. The cloning talk is very interesting. Um, the to, to side a couple of details from it. I mentioned the uh, the spaceships already. That's definitely something that is brought up. The idea that well, it. Uh, embryos just weigh less than people. So it's cheaper to blast those into space and those will 
uh, presumably robots will raise them when and grow them when they get to where they're going. Uh-huh. But um, there's a bit where he's uh, where they're citing uh, molecular biologist uh, Joshua uh, Letterberg, and they raise the problem that narcissists will be the most likely to clone themselves, <laughs> and this could result in just more narcissists. Uh, though Toffler mentions this is really more of a concern if narcissism is biologically transferable rather than culturally transferable, and. I started looking into this a little bit, and I and I realized we might have to come back and talk about narcissism in more detail because it looks like there have been studies about narcissism as possibly being um, like uh, uh, something you can inherit. But I'm not sure where we currently are regarding the nature nurture discussion of narcissism. I mean, if it's m- like most personality traits that I've read about, it's it's going to be a mix. It will usually be that. There's some kind of uh, there is a heritable level of predisposition, but then Mm -hmm. that that doesn't get you all the way there. That just sort of like somewhat increases or decreases the chance that a person will in in a given environment uh, environment develop narcissism. And then there's probably a huge influence of like, you know, experience, childhood upbringing and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like there's a lot to, to work out before we can actually make an argument for heritability for narcissism. But um but the angle is interesting, I think, to me, um, in light of the the TV series Foundation, uh, which I, I don't know how many listeners out there have been watching this. Um, I guess caveat that we did read some ads for Foundation on the show, but um, a- afterwards, I get, uh, we got into watching it, and uh, really great show. But you're not being paid to say this. <laughs> I'm not being paid to say this, but it's a terrific show. Um, but there's this whole angle that's apparently not in the Asimov books, uh, but is quite uh, fascinating on the series, and that is that you have this genetic dynasty in the empire where you see a procession of Cleon the first clones that rule this vast interstellar civilization. And, um, uh, and of course, many, or if not most of them are narcissists, but you can also raise the question, like how much of that is, is it, is, is tied up in the genes of Cleon the first and how much of it is the way that Cleon is raised, uh, because they are, you know, they're raised, each one is raised to be the emperor of an interstellar civilization. And presumably raised by other narcissists. Um, yeah, you actually do, because you have three at a time. So mm-hmm. there's, um, there's a brother, Dawn, a brother, Day, and a brother, Dusk. Mm-hmm. There's like a young version of the clone, um, an adult version of the clone, and like an elderly version of the clone, with the middle clone being the primary ruler. And so Day and Dusk are essentially raising dawn anyway we'll put a pin in that for later discussion uh but in, in general the, the tofflers do raise concerns over a number of quote-unquote birth technologies uh especially the idea of engineering certain properties into children and this also crosses over into concerns that are raised elsewhere about like the future of the family and we talked about that in the previous episode how a lot of these concerns about like the future shape of the family haven't really panned out like um you know the idea that well the People will just be raised in communes and so forth. Mm -hmm. Now, I feel like there are sort of three things going into modern considerations of this birth technology thing, though, Um, because on one hand, as we discussed, perhaps the the alarm was raised early enough and we have been largely more careful in this area of technological advancement. But I think we also might consider that we're just not yet at the point of real crisis with birth technologies, at least not at scale. And also, you know, the, the Tofflers might not be fully recognizing the overall benefits of birth technologies and that we might be less culturally open to drastic changes in the basic family unit. After all, I don't know. Uh, but but I do know 
people, real people in the world who have benefited from strategies you might call birth technologies. And I wouldn't say it feels, it doesn't feel super future shocky to me. It just feels like, well, there are perhaps some extra options available today and people take advantage of those options if they can. Yes. And you could also argue that the fact that we're not currently surrounded by human clones uh, could be an indication that, like the Tofflers suggest in their sort of solutions section of the book, we it could be indicative of the fact that, uh, you know, sci- the, the bodies governing scientific research saw this change coming and were able to essentially get enough thought and discussion out there early enough that that there uh, that there hasn't been much temptation for scientists to experiment with human cloning, at least not in the open. Yeah, never underestimate humanity's power to fear change as well as avoid doing anything with it. But unfortunately, to come back on the other side, I think a lot of times seeing a a uh, potentially dangerous or disruptive change coming is not enough if there are people who have powerful individual incentives to pursue it anyway. Yeah. For the record, I think clone babies are fine. I'm, I'm pro-clone baby. Bring, bring okay. on the clone babies. Uh, now, one thing we got into at length in part two was a uh, paper that tried to use empirical research from the last 50 years to assess the general predictions that, that the Tofflers made about how uh, we will use time in the future. So this primarily concerns their prediction that uh, the future would be characterized by greater and greater transience in life, a sort of general shortening of the length of episodes, both large and small, uh, and, and, a, and a shortening of commitments throughout life. The paper tried to compare these predictions to actual time use studies and concluded that for the parts we could check, the Toffler's predictions about time use were actually pretty good. Like we we have seen time use become more fragmented, which you could characterize as uh, as having more transience to it, uh, more fragmented, more irregular and more overlapped. And people do uh, report feeling increasingly stressed and hurried about time, even in cases where they actually objectively have more of it. Uh, However, there were also some predictions they made about time use that didn't really pan out, such as they sort of imply that people would end up devaluing home life and spending more time outside the home coming and going a lot. In fact, uh, the the research has has shown the opposite. People in high technology cultures seem to be valuing home life more and more and spending more time inside the home, though it strikes me that this could possibly be interpreted as an effect of changing technology and to some extent future shock. Uh, So like, you know, the Internet and media technology make it easier to stay home without being bored. And uh, it's possible that like anxiety, which may or may not be related to future shock, increasingly makes people hesitant to go out. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. 
Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So we've already talked a lot about uh, how the Tofflers described future shock, why they argued it was uh, it, it was likely to uh, become an increasing feature of human life. But they also spend a significant amount of time in their book talking about our reaction to it. Like, what could we do about future shock to help alleviate and even prevent it? Yeah. And they uh, they also lay out several different what they call maladaptive coping strategies that can emerge. So ways that will sort of um, deal with future shock um, on our own terms without perhaps even realizing that future shock is going on. Uh, and I found these categories uh, rather insightful. Uh, you know, I have some some caveats to add, uh, but uh, but I want to go through these because I think there's some some interesting ideas here. So the, the first category of maladaptive coping strategies for future shock that they outline is that of the denier. The denier blocks out unwanted reality and clings to the idea that any 
change is just superficial. Uh, quote, he finds comfort in such cliches as young people were always rebellious or there's nothing new on the face of the earth or the more things change, the more they stay the same. This is funny because uh, I did not expect when they said that there are deniers, this is what they were going to mean by it. But no, but I do see. So they're saying like denier in the sense of denying that anything is really different this time when they're saying, no, no, it objectively is actually different this time. The technological regime we're living in now is different. It is actually happening faster. And so the denier here is saying, oh, you know, it's always been like this. Yeah. And the, the Tofflers have the denier essentially puts off change until change is forced upon them in just a one single massive life catastrophe. So the preferable alternative would be, of course, to take on a series of manageable problems and solve those instead of dealing with one gigantic problem at the end. And uh, yeah, it's an, I think it's an interesting way of looking at things, because, I mean, certainly you don't need a future shock scenario to see uh, you know, versions of this, you know, there are all sorts of realities in life that you that are, are conquerable if you deal with them as small battles as opposed to one enormous, uh, you know, world ending battle. I think the denier attitude can be attractive to a lot of people because it sounds very uh, carefree. You know, it, mm -hmm. it's actually it, it communicates a sense of confidence to say like, ah, you know, I wouldn't worry about it. Thing, th things have always been like this, which it, that can be an assuring thing to hear, especially in the face of like actual actual alarmism when people are like getting freaked out about something that's not actually a problem, which happens all the time. Yeah, I feel like with the denier, there's sort of two, I have sort of two feelings. About it. On one hand, I feel like you do kind of have to block it all out sometimes. Like you, you can't constantly be uh, waging battles against change and, and dealing with change. Sometimes you just got to like, you know, get to work and do whatever you do. Um, and uh, as far as these uh, generalities, you know, uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same or that young people are always rebellious and so forth. There are a million of these. And on one hand, I, reading this, I, I kept thinking, well, um, some of these are kind of true, right? I mean, the reason we say them is that there is at least some truth to them. So I'm not sure we should just completely throw those out or see those as just red flags. But on the other hand, I do see where they're coming from. Like you could just, if, if you need a generality um, to grab onto to keep from having to deal with change, they are available. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess another way of thinking about it is that when you are considering whether things are really different today or whether a change is uh, a change is really happening in the world, there are, uh, to use statistics terms, there are type one and type two errors happening all mm -hmm. the time around us. There are people saying this is totally different. It's never been like this before when when it has. It's you know, it's not different. And there are people who are ignoring things that are totally different now be saying like, ah, don't worry about it. It's, it's always been like this when it actually is something totally different. And I guess I guess we should also acknowledge that yeah, things can also be both. Right. I mean, you can have something happening in a given culture that matches up with expected trends. But to channel into the future shock a little bit, like if, it, if things are happening at an advanced rate technologically, then you're dealing with a slightly different scenario. Also, if you're talking about future shock, you're talking about psychological effects on the person, in which case an error of the alarmist sort would still have negative psychological effects on you because you would still be perceived as a change. Uh, so, mm -hmm. it, you know, here's a, a false change that is freaking you out alongside all of the real changes. Yeah. 
All right. Now, the next example that they give of a maladaptive coping strategy is that of the specialist. So the specialist doesn't block out everything. The specialist specializes in one area of the changing world and keeps pace with that, which creates the feeling that they're keeping pace with the larger pace of change in the world. Quote, he narrows the slit through which he sees the world. So it can be superficially successful as a coping mechanism for a while, but this too, they write, will eventually catch up with the specialist. This is the person who thinks that they're the master of reality because they're in the crypto forums. It's like, (laughs) I've figured out cryptocurrency. I know everything about the future. And then suddenly, yeah, you you just get, uh, according to the Tofflers at least, then that might sort of lull you for a while, but then it'll all catch up to you and you'll feel this shock where you're like, wait, I, I don't understand, you know, what else is happening in culture for some reason. Yeah, yeah. So you think you're you're still stable on the bicycle, but then it's going to fall over anyway. Um, yeah, this was an interesting one to think about because on, on one hand, I feel like you do have to sort of focus on the things you can change and adapt where you can adapt and where it makes the most sense to adapt. But um, yeah, I suppose the idea is that if that's your day-to-day reaction, it still could eventually catch up with you. Mm-hmm. All right. The next uh, category that they uh, present is that of the a reservationist, uh, one who rages against change and clings to the past, adapting not to the future, but to outdated modes of what came before. Now, this one is interesting because the the Tofflers note that this sort of thing can manifest among both liberal individuals and conservative individuals. They're just reaching back to different models of the past, uh, which I I thought was interesting. So for my, my, my example that came to mind is like you had someone like Terrence McKenna, who called for an archaic revival. You know, it's like, oh, you need to go back to these older uh, models of how we viewed the world. Um, and on the other side of the, the spectrum, you have, uh, you know, social conservatives who call for, what, a return to family values and so forth. So both see an escape from the future into the past to some degree. Uh, you know, this idea as the Tofflers drive home, uh, you know, they're r- rallying around, we have to return to what worked. And I don't think it's necessarily, you know, I don't think it's necessarily putting your head in the sand to look backwards, but I do see, I do see what they're going for here. Well, yeah, one thing I would say about any model that says I want to go back and, you know, it used to be good in the past and we should make it like that again. Uh, that's always a fantasy. I mean, you can get sort of closer and closer to, re- but like you're never really understanding exactly what the past was like, what that past point that you're idealizing is like. In many cases, it's just like a pure fantasy. It's just people like <laughs> sort of dreaming up what they imagine the past was like and then saying, I want to return to that. In some cases, it might be more based in actual knowledge about history, but no matter what, like you can't perfectly recreate that past time. It is going on. There, there are things that have changed about the material world that that cannot be undone. So you're not actually going to be able to go back. The best you could do is try to kind of imitate it. Yeah, it reminds me of a, an interview I saw with a, a, a musician whose work uh, I like. And the interviewer um, asked him, if you could live in any time in human history, where where would you when would you live? And they said the Middle Ages. And they were like, well, but then you wouldn't have electric guitars. And they were like, oh, Oh, okay, I guess that's a good point. So, <laughs> yeah, live now, yeah. But yeah, but personally, I tend to see anybody who wants to go back to a time in the past that they think was better, uh, th- that's always involving some kind of un- inaccurate idealization of the past, just like failing to realize 
that there were problems then, too, and that many of the things that you think were good about that time cannot be recreated. And really, this gets into the next category, I think, quite well, and that is that that of the super simplifier who seeks a quote unquote unitary solution and goes all in on it as a means of explaining the world or simplifying the challenges of the present. Uh, You know, it's uh, in their words, a quote, simple way out of burgeoning complexity of choice and general overstimulation. The person who's got it all figured out because they read a book or maybe an article or nowadays maybe they watched a video and that person, they laid it all out for them. Now they know. Now they understand the world because Dr. So-and-so told them this is this is what's really going on. Right, right. Yeah, they, they stress that this can ultimately kind of take on a form as uh, opposition or or support. So, you know, this world in this this worldview can be defined by its savior or by its enemy, like. If, you know, uh, this is the bad guy. And once you realize this is the bad guy, everything makes sense. Or this is the solution. And once you realize that, everything makes sense. And of course, you can dip into both categories. Uh, unfortunately, I think the Internet these days is just rampant with people who are who are trying to become sort of the the world explaining cult leader to an army of people on the internet who listen to their podcast or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's like, I've got the one solution to tell you how everything is. Everybody out there, be wary of this, especially if the person is a very charismatic speaker. Nobody is going to be able to explain how everything works or like, you know, mm-hmm. nobody, nobody is going to be the person who like, ah, here's the here's the guy who's got it all figured out. And now I can just listen to him and he'll tell me what's going on. Yeah, I, I think this kind of thing is especially noticeable in conspiracy thought. Um, but I, but I suppose you could also argue that it can be beneficial to some degree. Like if one goes all in on a particular social cause, um, you know, I can see the appeal of that. And, and, and if them going all in on that particular social cause ends up producing beneficial results, then I don't know. Uh, I mean, are, are they happy? Are they fulfilled? Are, are, are people benefiting from this? Um, I can see where you can make it, a, you know, a more complex equation to figure out. And uh, I should also note that the book stresses that um, the this uh, unitary solution might be found in various intellectual ideas, which, of course, could even include the concept of future shock, they note, like they point out that you know, the, the, their book is not immune to this kind of thing. Uh, but they also stress that it could be an investment in action rather than thought. Like, I am, you know, I'm going to do this one thing. I'm, I'm going to be this one thing. Um, and and that is going to sort of super simplify this realm of choices that would otherwise confound me. And uh, again, I don't know that that is necessarily a bad thing in in all cases. Like if someone goes all in on cross training or whatever, you know, like this is who I am now. This is what I'm doing. Like, I don't know, live and let live. Right. Well, I mean, I think that's even even if you did this with a very good book or something, I I think just there there's not there's no authority or no single text that explains everything. And so if you try to under if every problem you're faced with, you try to say, well, what does my text say about it? And even if that text is future shock, you know, uh, what wisdom can I get from the Tofflers that would make sense of what's going on to me right now? I think that's just very limiting. Like you, you you've got to reach out broader and like have more uh, more influences on your mind than just sort of like one leader text or leader idea or person that you you always go back to to explain everything. Yeah, yeah, and I guess you you could even apply it, of course, to religion. Like, 
yes, one can, you could talk about religion as being a super simplifier kind of approach. And I think that would only be true to a certain extent, because I think once you really get into any given religion, there's off, off, there's a lot of complexity there. It's not just a, a simple top-down system, uh, though you might have like a slice of that, again, with a particular charismatic individual at the heart of it and, and so forth. But even then, it's like, okay, future changes are coming, and they're coming at a pace that human beings can't keep up with, the basic idea of future shock. Retreating into religion or, or becoming super religious might help to some degree on an individual level, but it is not going to help at the, at the level and at the scale that they're talking about uh, long term. I'm, of course, not accounting for any um, you know, supernatural aspects, just focusing on the natural world scenario here. Right. As a, as a way of uh, trying to find some kind of explanation to help you understand what's going on in this confusing world. And yeah, you know, it, it's hard. Like the world is confusing to some extent that may be due to uh, the, the causes that uh, the Tofflers identify. And maybe there are other causes, too. Uh, but yeah, it's like it's hard to make sense of this world. And it can be very comfortable to just find one authority to turn to that'll tell you here's 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 what's going on. But like. I, I just warn people, like, don't do that. You don't want to be the person who's uh, who, who can't stop always referring to the Internet guy they just latched on to that explains everything, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. 
If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Now, there's another thing I've been thinking about in terms of uh, maladaptive reactions to Future Shock, which is what if the idea of Future Shock is to some extent real, if the Tofflers were to some extent on target and describing a real phenomenon, but people don't quite realize it. And instead, it manifests as a kind of anxiety and psychic distress that arises as if out of nowhere. And people end up blaming it on unrelated uh, third-party phenomena. <laughs> you know, uh, this kind of reminds me that, uh, so I was reading the New York Times obituary for Alvin Toffler that was written by Keith Schneider, published when Alvin died in 2016. And there was a passage where the obituary quoted a critic of Toffler's, and I thought this was kind of interesting, so I want to read this, this quote first. In recent years, benefiting from hindsight, some critics said Mr. Toffler had gotten much wrong. Shell Israel, an author and commentator who writes about social media for Forbes, took issue with Mr. Toffler in 2012 for painting, quote, a picture of people who were isolated and depressed, cut off from human intimacy by a relentless firehose of messages and data barraging us. But, he added, we are not isolated by it, and when the information overloads us, most people are still wise enough to use the power of the off button to gain some peace. You know, I think this is a this is an interesting and funny example to highlight because, of course, I do think Toffler got a lot of stuff wrong, but I don't personally think that this was one of them. Like just to zero in on one example of information overload, it really does seem to me that the the bombardment of information we're getting from media, especially now Internet based media and social media, video content on the Internet and all that, I personally think that probably is responsible for a lot of feelings of isolation and depression. And I think it does make a lot of people more lonely. And a lot of us really do have trouble using the off button to escape from it. And here's kind of where we get back to uh, what I was wondering about us not identifying the actual cause of, uh, of potential future shock. Uh, apart from the innately compelling addictive qualities of social media and internet video media and all that, the things that like naturally just keep us scrolling for more, 
often we are not quite able to realize it is the media that is causing us to feel so bad. And this is true about a lot of things in life. We're often just not good at identifying the causes of our own unhappiness. There, there's a whole like therapy industry that a big part of it is like helping people figure out what it is in their life that is making them anxious, you know? Um, yeah. And so like, it's just not always obvious to us what the sources of our, of our unease are. And so I, I admit uh, this is, I don't have like uh, empirical evidence for this. All I can go on is just sort of my hunch about reality. But my opinion is that it is a really odd thing to choose to criticize because I think this is one of the more prescient generalizations uh, situated among many less prescient ones that, uh, you know, this information overload through media can really make people feel isolated and, and lonely and distressed. And I wonder if it's possible that a lot of future shock-like effects exist in a context like that, where like they do have this negative psychological effect on us, but we don't really realize that it's the technology or the uh, the cultural changes downstream from that technology that are the root cause of it. Instead, it just kind of like, I don't know, life feels bad right now, and I feel confused and afraid, and I don't know what's going on, but you don't realize why. Yeah, yeah, because it's it, you can always find other reasons and not to say those other reasons aren't in play too like yeah there are terrible things going on in the world you know there there are a lot of things to be concerned about and then certain generalities are also probably in play you know i mean um the the, the youth are always rebelling right i mean it it does it is often the case that it seems it's like it's harder to make friends when you get older things like that you know and those are often cited as well but perhaps the technology is a part of of, of these scenarios and others as well so I, I guess part of what I'm reacting to is maybe the assumption that uh, when uh, when changes to our lives are brought on by by technology, it will be clear to us that is what's happening. I, I don't know if it will be clear. Yeah, no, that's a great point. But OK, we said we were going to get to the section of the book where the Tofflers talk about strategies for uh, for reacting to and weathering the storm of changes uh, uh, brought on by technology. How do people, how should people deal with future shock, maybe prevent it in some cases or alleviate its effects in others? Yeah. And this is a very interesting part of the book as well. And again, they're dealing with like essentially strategies for survival of future shock, not for survival of any particular uh, you know, realistic or um, even fanciful prediction of what the future might consist of. All right. So the first thing they lay out is direct coping. Uh, this is managing overstimulation and anxiety at the individual level, not just at the and not just at a subconscious level, as in like the maladaptive practices, but at the conscious level of things. OK, so uh, what does that mean, managing it at the conscious level? I think this is basically the pushing the off switch area of the okay. equation, like the idea that like, OK, at some point, you've got to be able to, to, to some degree, step up and manage your overstimulation. Like maybe you, you know, to go back to the, the movie we watched uh, most recently on Weird House Cinema, maybe you cut down your wall of television sets to just one or two television sets that you play at one time. You know, you make like sensible decisions that you can uh, regarding your overstimulation. You're not going to have control over everything, but you are going to have control over some things, right? Right. Realize when it's getting to you and then demand, as David Bowie did, that the televisions get out of my mind. Yeah. Uh, in, in a practical sense, by by turning them off. Yeah. OK. Yeah. And that's, again, sometimes easier said than done. But OK, we acknowledge that that could be one step. 
Well, I mean, it's e- certainly easier to do if you are put in place a sort of uh, cultural regime around yourself to remind you that that's an option and to like, re- you know, bring it up over and over. It's easier then than it is if you're just like sitting there with your media devices and like never even hearing, you know, people say, hey, if you considered that this media might be making you less happy than you could be uh, or, or causing you anxiety, maybe, maybe you should do something. Yeah. And then again, it's also easier to imagine with the basic like 1970s television scenarios, like the television is stressing you off. We'll just turn that baby off, man. Right. But it's different. It's different now. Like when you have so many people that, you know, work through the Internet, they need the Internet and social media for their job. Like you can't just ease necessarily easily just hit the off switch on all of that. Right. I have to have my phone on because I might get a work email I have to reply to. But then also, uh, uh, yeah, oh, there's there's the, the old Twitter or whatever it's called now. Yeah. It's the X. It's the X, Joe. Right. Because you X it out and you make it go away. Right? <laughs> I'm sure I'm the millionth person to make that joke. It's the first time I've heard it. I've actually when I, I I have checked it out once or twice, you know, for to see what somebody had to say about something, and I found my finger going to the X logo because I identify it with a with a canceling out and Xing out, and I perfect. It just feels like a design error, but I, who am I to say? Get out of my mind! All right, the next thing that they uh, they they highlight is the idea of personal stability zones, so a way of managing change in life rather than suppressing it. Uh, sensible preparations for the future, planning for things that um, that fulfill you and avoiding unnecessary changes, especially the just cause changes, you know, like we're changing this just because, you know, updating something you don't really need, um, but we're just changing it because we need the next upgrade, like figuring out ways to avoid that and maintain stability. Okay, so you understand that there are a lot of changes that are going to happen that you cannot avoid. So you identify what are the things that you can avoid changing that don't have to change, and you can keep those stable to help give yourself a a sort of a foothold. Yeah. The next one that they highlight is that of situational grouping. So future shock absorbers, social organization, not based on what we are, but what we are becoming. Right. So they say because life is just going to be characterized by more and more change all of the time, we should have social groupings that help people through changes. They're designed to be sort of social identification groups based on the changes that you're experiencing. For example, uh, sort of social clubs or social organizations for people who are moving to a new city or people who are changing careers or people who are getting divorced or whatever. The ultimate irony based on what we were just saying is that you do kind of find this with various uh, like Facebook groups, right? I mean, there is a group for everything mm-hmm. these days. And, uh, I, you know, I didn't attempt to do anything like a tally, but I'm betting there are, you know, a huge number of groups that are positioned to help people going through various changes in life or could certainly be utilized for that. Well, from my own recent memory, I know that there are a lot of things that are geared toward people who are currently or about to have a baby. Yes, yes. Yeah. So anyway, be inter- with all of these, it'd be interesting to hear listener uh, feedback. But uh, yeah, l- listeners, if you if if you have um, uh, benefited from some sort of a group in real life or online, etc., um, that is essentially situational grouping, uh, it would be interesting to hear from you. All right, the next one is crisis counseling, one-on-one counseling during the crisis of adaptation. Uh, this one I felt 
felt like this one, I felt like this one made a fair amount of sense, right? I mean, if if you're going through some sort of a crisis, uh, be it a crisis of future shock or something else, it makes sense to get professional help uh, if, if professional help is available and, uh, you know, affordable and so forth. I mean, it seems like it would just be generally socially beneficial to have more free crisis counseling for crisis of whatever cause. Right, right. Yeah. And and it and it also kind of falls in line with the whole idea of like, when are you when when are you going to get involved in a crisis scenario? Are you going to get involved at those little winnable battles or that one massive life destroying catastrophe? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think you can you can certainly point to examples in, in the world where, yeah, there, some sort of crisis counseling wasn't available. And then at the very end, you end up with a situation nobody wanted to have to contend with. Mm-hmm. All right. The next uh, thing that they recommend is halfway house Future shock absorbers. So urban recreation centers for rural people entering into their systems. Uh, this, I'm not so sure about this one. This is the basic idea that like cities are just going to get bigger and bigger and they're just going to keep drawing in uh, people from rural environments. And they're going to go through future shock, especially as they enter into these urban centers. And so you're going to need to uh, have a halfway house, a, way, a place where they can go and become better at and more adapted to what's going on in the city. Yeah, I don't know how much this one, how much sense this one makes. Then again, I mean, I guess the idea of a halfway house, uh, you know, the main sense in which we're familiar with the halfway house is like for people coming out of uh, institutions, like people who have been in a, you know, in a prison or maybe in like a mental health care facility or something like that will have a sort of semi-stable house where it's like, you know, everything is the same and it's a controlled environment for part of the day, maybe at night where you stay there and then you you are being slowly reacclimated into uh, the rest of society by spending part of your day outside the house. So I don't know. I mean, to think about it in that broader sense, I could maybe imagine something like that. But then again, I don't know how much like I don't know how much like the future shock is really different between, say, like a, the rural environment and the city environment. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that one. Yeah, I don't know. It also feels like the whole idea of future shock is that you would have to always be in the halfway house because you'd never be able to fully adapt. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, this one, this one I, w- I was definitely less sure about. The next two are interesting to talk about, though I'm not sure how um, how sensible they are either. The first is that you would have enclaves of the past. So communities in which turnover, novelty and choice are deliberately limited, uh, basically Westworld. <laughs> or or some other like past uh, or simplified uh, environment world. I guess if we were to realistically imagine it, it's like, okay, there's so much internet, there's internet everywhere. For the weekend, we're going to go to no internet bill. And then when you go there, you're going to feel a certain bit of relief. And we often, we often do, if you travel around, you may find yourself in a situation that is essentially no internet bill. It may be your mom's house in the country. It may be, um, you know, you've traveled to somewhere where there's cell reception isn't there. You don't have an international cell plan or something like that. But this would be a place that is deliberately created for this purpose. This was one section of the solutions here where I was noticing what I thought was kind of a recurring problem with the book, which in my opinion was, I think the book sort of has a a problem projecting a realistic picture of what is likely to be done. 
Like there are a lot of recommendations and predictions in the book that are things like, you know, yeah, we will we will create uh, future shock absorption zones where people can go live as like a, uh, you know, a medieval farmer for a few months so that they can recover from the pace of change in modern life. And I was kind of thinking, like, apart from whether or not that's a good idea, like practically, how is that going to happen? You know, like 99 percent of people, they they can't afford to do that. They've got to go to work to make enough money to survive, take care of their families every day and all that. You you can't just like leave for however long you need to 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 you know recover like this. So I think a lot of predictions sort of have the unspoken assumption of a post-scarcity abundance future where everything is like uh, you know, there's a very generous state that like provides for whatever people need in order to adapt. And, you know, it's almost like anything not prevented by the laws of physics will be possible. But I, I think it turns out that there are like big problems of will and incentive that prevent a lot of things from happening, even if they are both desirable and physically technologically possible, just because like, I don't know, it would like take resources and will to make this possible for people in general. And and that, you know, th- that hasn't happened. Yeah. I mean, they would require a, a drastic restructuring of society, which ultimately is something they, they kind of push for. Yeah. Um, but, but we'll, I think we'll get back to that in a minute. Um, the flip side of Westworld, for those of you who are familiar with the, <laughs> the original movies, at least, is, of course, Future World. They also argue for enclaves of the future, um, where people may experience aspects of the future in advance, kind of a halfway house for future living, right? It's like, yeah. well, I don't know if I'm going to be ready for the future. Well, it's all right. We have a place you can go for the weekend, and that'll help you get ready for it. Perfect. Same caveats I had before, but yes, uh, I I think uh, that should be, and it should be publicly subsidized. Everybody should get to go to Future World, not just for the super rich, as John Hammond said. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. 
Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Now, the, the next one is, um, I think, a little bit of a head-scratcher, but also makes sense, but also is something that I think we're just going to do on our own as human beings, and that is the what they call global space pageants. So the introduction of additional stability points and rituals into a society to give it structure as older stability points and rituals fall away. Again, one of the whole things about Future Shock is, like, even the institution's uh, and ideas that you would cling to for sort of st- for stability as you're moving into the future and dealing with all these other changes, those are falling away too. And so you feel completely unmoored from the past. Their whole thing is, well, we just need to keep coming up with new things, but aren't we doing that already? Like International Cat Day is a thing and we all love it, but it's not like rooted in deep human history or anything. I think we're Things like that we're always going to keep coming up with. Uh, we're going to keep creating these quote-unquote stability points. I think this is a really good point. And I think it, in general it's true that we underestimate the importance of rituals and the work they do in helping us feel stability amidst the inevitable changes of life. Yeah, absolutely. And then the final point that they, uh, the, the survival tactic that they mentioned, this is a big one, and, and this one makes perfect sense, really, and that is a future-facing education system, mm. uh, which is kind of a broad, broad concept, but certainly in, in like individual takes on it, like this makes perfect sense. Like you should be educating people in a way to where the lessons they're learning are applicable to the future, preparing them for change, et cetera. Yeah, and a, and a big part of the future-facing education system both necessitates and uh, would involve programs for predicting the future. So in, in a lot of ways, the solutions section of, of the Toffler's book 
could be seen overall as a case for futurology itself. Uh, a big part of, of the Toffler's solution is, for example, what they call anticipatory democracy, which would be mechanisms for democratically predicting what will happen in the future and setting long-term goals so you know technocratic planning will have tangible objectives to aim for. And they spend a lot of time talking about the benefits of having professional future imagineers who specialize in predicting the future in various ways so we can anticipate what's coming and plan around it to reduce future shock impacts. And uh, uh, this could involve anything from banning a particularly dangerous coming technological development to uh, coming up with these future shock absorbers like we you were just talking about, Rob, uh, in advance of the coming changes. But ultimately, they say that this work cannot be all top down. It can't all be from like, you know, the government office of predicting the future with, with professional imagineers. There's also an important role for an ad hoc democratic future anticipation potential. You, you, they say maybe you should assemble these units out of the people. So like people maybe would be, maybe would be selected at random, just like juries are, uh, from, from the demos to come together and predict what's going to happen in the future and say what, uh, how that interacts with goals that they have for, for their society and what should be done about it. I'm going to read a, a quote from the book here where they, uh, they, they get into this a bit. Quote, the time has come for dramatic reassessment of the directions of change a reassessment made not by the politicians or the sociologists or the clergy or the elitist revolutionaries, not by technicians or college presidents, but by people, by the people themselves. We need quite literally to, quote, go to the people with a question that is almost never asked of them. What kind of a world do you want 10, 20 or 30 years from now? We need to initiate, in short, a continuing plebiscite on the future. The moment is right for the formation in each of the high technology nations of a movement for total self-review, a public self-examination aimed at broadening and defining in social as well as merely economic terms the goals of quote-unquote progress. On the edge of a new millennium, on the brink of a new stage of human development, we are racing blindly into the future. But where do we want to go? What would happen if we actually tried to answer this question? That's a very good point. And I don't know I don't know about like the the particular mechanics that the Tofflers suggest, but I would say I, I think it would be a good thing if the uh, the conversation of democracies was way more focused on the long term goals and on the future instead of just like quarreling over what is or is not happening in the present. Yeah. So the, the Tofflers contend that contended that ultimately change can certainly remain the protagonist of the human story, provided that wild, unchecked, and unanticipated change is controlled through a host of personal and systemic changes. Um, you know, what they're proposing here is hardly as advanced as something like the psychohistory of Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, where you have, which is, a, you know, sort of a, an advanced sci-fi concept of futurology, where you're like mathematically modeling the trends in the future. Um, mm -hmm. But this thing still at its heart, it remains a challenge for us. You know, we can point to, to you know, to, to various examples in the modern world to underline this, you know, the, our inability to really completely appreciate changes that are coming and, and, and feel like they are real to us and then act on that information. And uh, I, th I think climate change is perhaps one of the more alarming examples, you know, 
in response to scientific consensus that modern industrialized society is inflicting considerable change on our environment and altering the course of temperature and climate, a certain amount of social and political effort has been applied to the problem, but not seemingly enough so far to alter the course to the degree that is advisable. And this seems to be, to come back to actually some of the points we raised earlier about like problems of will and incentives, like there are Mm -hmm. also people who have countervailing incentives and a lot of power to try to pursue those incentives. Yeah. And then just, you know, individually on the human level, it's like we just have difficulty dealing with problems that uh, extend into into the future, you know, especially the future that exists beyond our own lifespan. Um, so, you know, this is not to say we should give up hope or anything. You know, obviously on the the, the, the climate front, there's a, a lot of momentum out there and small changes do add up. But paradoxically, some of the ideas that the Tofflers outline actually seem to work against these efforts, though, because people, again, they don't want to change and change, be it, you know, various changes in your life to lessen the effects of climate change or the changes brought on by climate change itself. Those can be ignored, avoided, and explained away via the various maladaptive coping mechanisms discussed earlier, at least for a certain amount of time. Oh, yeah, I'm thinking of direct analogies to, you know, the denier mindset. The, mm-hmm. Oh, it's always been like this. You know? yeah, oh, okay. Yeah, this, this isn't really different. <laughs> Nothing's different. This is just the same. This is just, a, you know, this, this is like the Newsweek cover from the 90s. But, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Anyway, you know, the basic paradox here, though, is certainly in play with just future shock in general as a broader topic. According to the Tofflers, we must change or we or we will be changed. Um, You can you can either figure out those those small battles that can be won and win those small battles, or you're going to deal with that much larger conflict that is going to be much more difficult to deal with. And again, coming back to that basic question, what kind of future do we actually want? And if, you know, if we answer that question, we answer it honestly and intelligently, then do we have the, um, the you know, do we have the will to do something about it? Well said. Well, Rob, I am glad you uh, you, you spurred us to do this, uh, this exploration of Future Shock. Like I said in the first episode, I'd never read the book before. Uh, I was only a little aware of the, the concept. And I think it is... <laughs> This is the kind of book that I think a lot of times people don't go back to, but I think there's a lot you can learn from it, even in the places there's a lot you can learn from, like the things that books like this get right and wrong. It's interesting to see, Mm -hmm. like, what they got wrong, why you might think that they they would end up thinking like that. Uh, So I don't know. I I love this sort of thing. Uh, The futurology of the past is endlessly interesting to me. Yeah, this was a fun one. So again, we'd love to hear from everyone out there um, how uh, how these episodes or the book itself, uh, if you have uh, have read it on your own, or if you've watched the uh, the TV uh, uh, documentary version of it that, again, can be streamed in some places, though not in great quality. Um, uh, let us know. We would love to hear from you. Uh, but yeah, on that note, we're going to go ahead and close out our look at Future Shock, though we may discuss some of it a little bit more in listener mail episodes uh, ahead. We'll remind you here that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, Listener Mail on Mondays, a short-form Artifact or Monster Fact on Wednesdays, and on Fridays we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. 
Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.